But we're in Joshua chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 30 to 35, the last uh, six verses of this passage. And let me just read these words to you once again. Joshua chapter 8 and verse number 30, it says, At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote, that is Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's bow in prayer one more time before we begin. God, I just come to you today. We come to you knowing that we need to hear from your word. We need to hear what you would have for us. And thank you for uh, how you have been at work in our lives. And we know that uh, each day is not an accident. We are not accidents. Our time together here is not by accident. Uh, And so encourage us in your word. Challenge us through your word. Uh, use, uh, use me to just be a conduit, a mouthpiece for what you would have for us to hear. Thank you for those that are teaching our kids. And again, we pray for them that you would use them to, to teach our kids. Just as Joshua read the law of the Lord to even the little ones uh, in Joshua 8, we pray that you would use the, the word that is presented to our little ones here today to, to work in their lives. So we thank you, we praise you for what you'll do, and give us uh, ears to hear and to listen, in Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you, why did you come here this morning? Why did you come here this morning? I don't know everyone that's here this morning, but I imagine there are all sorts of reasons why people have come this morning. Maybe your parents came, so you had to come. You wanted to support your spouse, and so you attend along with them. Perhaps it's a habit that you've developed through the many years that you've just been coming to church, or maybe it's your Sunday to volunteer in a ministry. Maybe you've come because you get to talk to your friends, or because it makes you feel good. Maybe you're the guy that's speaking, and somebody has to do that, so you show up. There are all sorts of reasons for why we are here today. And I know there's someone in the room that's tempted to raise their hand with that Sunday school answer and say, well, Dennis, I am here to worship the Lord. And of course, that is the reason why we should all be here. 
Worship of God is the reason that we gather together. And I, at the same time, hope that that coming is a habit for you. It's commanded by our Savior to come regularly. I also hope that while you're here, you are connecting with friends. You have friends and relationships that you look forward to, to joining together once again. I hope that you leave built up in your faith and built up in having a greater love for the God who so loves you. But ultimately, we, we come and we gather to worship the Creator and to see others built up in their worship. And that's the why. Why are we here? Or why should we be here? But really, that answer leads us to a, another question. How in the world does God accept my attempts to worship Him? Do I just need the right motive when I show up? Is it acceptable worship if I'm sincere enough? Like if I really, if I really feel it and believe it? Do I need to be a good person leading up to that week before I show up on Sunday? Then God will accept my worship. And listen, maybe you've been coming to, to worship services your entire life. Maybe you're here in a worship service for the very first time. But the question is the same for each of us. On what basis does the creator of the universe, the almighty God, accept our feeble attempts to worship him? Why should he accept my out-of-tune singing and my distracted mind and my finicky emotions? Well, our passage today, I think, will help us think through these questions and then give us confidence that our worship of God can be acceptable. It is possible to have acceptable worship before the Almighty Creator. So if you're, again, if you're dropping in with us for the first time in our series, God has been leading his people, the Israelites, into the land that he has promised them. And God has been using the people of Israel to bring judgments on the wicked nations there in the land of Canaan, what is now known as modern-day Israel. But we've also seen that God's uh, that Israel is not above God's judgment. Just in chapter 7, they come under God's judgment because of their own sin. And then they repented, and they dealt with their sin. That's all in chapter 7. And as we co- we've come into chapter 8, this is the story of how the people of Israel have moved forward in their relationship with God after they have repented of their sin. So the first 29 verses of chapter 8, God gives them victory in the battle of the city of Ai. This was their second, their second victory. The first victory was at the city of Jericho. Now they have come to the city of Ai, and God has delivered them victory. We come to chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, and you see these three words at the beginning of verse 30. At that time, and, and and here, here's what that means. This could have happened in the days or even weeks after the battle of AI is over. I'm, again, I mentioned this last week. Uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, someone that's been in the military and been part of battles, but it, it doesn't just end and then uh, you just move on. There's, there's all kinds of things that are taking place and there's the, there was the destruction of the city and of course they're going back and they need to get the rest of the people of Israel to then move forward and they're going to make their march to Mount Ebal. Now I have a map for you. You're going to see this map a couple times. And if you say, boy, I, I can't see all of that, there are plenty of seats up front. 
that you could see very clearly. Um, but you see that big name there, Shechem, and that's, that's an important uh, city at the time that, that we'll want to make note of. Then you see just above that, there's a mountain, and that is Mount Ebal. That is the, the taller of the two mountains, and you have uh, just to, would be your left, Mount Gerizim, and you, you have this corridor, this valley in between. And this is the scene of Joshua chapter 8. And, and it tells us in, in verse number 30 that Joshua built an altar to the Lord. You can keep that map up just so we have a visual. Why did Joshua build the altar here? That was a question that I had when I was reading this. Mount Ebal is not a new name for the people of Israel. If you go back to, the, to Deuteronomy chapter 27, a book in the Bible just before Joshua, that, is, that, that Mount Ebal is where they were to build an altar once they crossed over into the land of Canaan. So they crossed the Jordan River, they come into the land of Canaan, and God has commanded Moses to, to command the people, when you get into the land, build an altar at Mount Ebal. Now, I mentioned the city of Shechem here. This shows up in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And Genesis just means origins or beginnings. And this is actually, this city, this, this area, is where God led Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of the Israelite people. It is at Shechem that God leads Abraham uh, on a journey, and he brings him to this area here, and he says, hey, look around. One day, I am going to give you and your offspring all of this land. So Abraham builds an altar here, way back in Genesis. Then you have Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. So you're tracking, Abraham is the father of the Israelite people. He gives birth to Isaac, who gives birth to Jacob. So Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob bought this land Okay, when, when, he was, uh, when he was alive, and he lives there for some time until Genesis chapter 46, and there's a famine in the land, and it forces Jacob and his family to go to Egypt. And that's why the people of Israel are in Egypt until God leads them out of Egypt, and he's bringing them back into the land. And just to show that these are not just made-up uh, locations by the Bible, I want to show you a current map. Here's a current map. You can look this up yourself on Google Maps, but you see uh, the, the name Nablus. I don't know if that's correct how to pronounce it. That is the city of Shechem, okay? That, that's right there. And you see just at the, at the very top on the left, the altar at Mount Ebal. They've done excavating, and they found this altar that was built there. And then just south of that, you have Her, or that uh, H-A-R, uh, that, that is the Hebrew way of saying Mount, uh, Mount Gerizim. You have the same thing here. In fact, there is currently, and you can see it on the map, a church, Jacob's Well Greek Orthodox Church, that is believed to mark the well of Jacob, where that was located. And that'll come up later uh, by the time we're done. We'll, we'll get back to that. But Joshua is leading the people back to where it all started with Abraham. He's leading them to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But how can they know that this God will accept their worship? 
And it's all going to start with a repentant heart, a heart that, that has a change of mind about their sin, their thoughts, and their action that turns from that sin and turns to him. The last two weeks, we saw how repentance provides a reset forward in our relationship with God and a reset forward in our obedience to God. This week, repentance provides a reset forward in our worship of God. Repentance provides a reset forward in our worship of God. God has already instructed the people of Israel about worship. Long before they get into the promised land, they had these instructions. And they have these instructions because God has made a covenant with his people. They say, well, what is a covenant? A covenant is like a binding agreement God makes with his people here. And what we have in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, is the people of Israel renewing the covenant that God made with them, agreeing to it once again. And you have this cycle in the history of Israel and really in the history of our own lives as well. Sin against, we sin against God. We repent and turn away from that sin and we renew the covenant. This is what the people of Israel will be doing. You'll see it all throughout their history. You just keep reading through the book of Joshua onward. They sin, they repent, renew the covenant. And the renewal of the covenant is so important as a renewal of God's relationship with his people. And this is the way they are able to offer acceptable sacrifice to him. It's through this covenant relationship. And it has not changed today. Here's a big truth that I want you to get this morning. True worship can only happen when we are in a covenant relationship with God. We're going to talk about what that means. But true worship, like acceptable worship, can only happen when we are in covenant relationship with God. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Israel's renewal of this covenant in Joshua chapter 8, and then we're going to look at a better covenant that has come since then. So whether we're talking about the people of Israel then, or we're talking about us today, entering a covenant relationship with God requires three things. Okay, here's the three things we're going to look at. But if you want to enter into a relationship with God, first of all, you need a right understanding of God. If we are to worship God, then we probably need to know who it is that we're worshiping. We are told in, in our text in Joshua, five times the word is uh, used here. Five times the word Lord is used. And you'll notice just even in verse number 30, and you can go down and you can find the other places that it's used, but Joshua built an altar to the Lord. Now, the word Lord is in all caps, which I think our teenagers would at least know what that means. Any teens want to be brave enough to throw out? When you see the word Lord in all caps, what does that mean? Anybody? It's the name Yahweh. Anytime you see that word Lord in all caps, it's the name Yahweh. So we are told who God is. It is the same God that created the world. It is, it's the same God that came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and led him and his family to the land of Canaan. This is the same God that gave the law to Moses. 
He is the one the people, were to, the, the, the people of Israel were to be looking to. No other God has delivered them in these first two battles. No other God miraculously parted the Jordan River so that they could cross over into the land. It was all Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. And the Israelites will be his representatives in the land. They were to be a witness to all people that Yahweh is the one true God. So they needed to have a right understanding of God. There we go. I could, I could just have you play that and read it. So I... Now it could have been easy for them to forget about Yahweh. They have victory at the battle of Ai. They're enjoying the spoils of war. I mean, how many times do we run to God when we're in a tough spot? We're in a tough spot, and then we get out of that spot, and life is good, and who is forgotten? The God who delivered us. But this is where we come back to Israel's repentance, and we know that their repentance was genuine because after the victory, they keep looking to Yahweh as the only true God. Now, some of you may be thinking, how can we know there's only one true God? I mean, there are lots of other gods that people worship in this world. And this is true. However, when we look at the created world, when you look at the world around you, it screams, someone made me. We don't look at anything else and think, oh, I'm glad this chair that I'm sitting in just kind of formed itself one day. No, we know somebody made that chair. Somebody made the automobile that you drive, but for some reason we look at the, the world around us and all of its intricacies and we think, ah, I guess it just kind of happened by chance. No, there, there was a creator. We have a creator. And if we have a creator, it is most logical that there is one creator, not many creators. And if we have one creator, then we ask, who is the creator and has he revealed himself? And the answer to that is yes. He has revealed himself in his word. And if you don't believe in a God or you don't believe that there is only one true God, I would, I would challenge you, pick up the Bible and read it and see how Yahweh reveals himself to us. The people of Israel needed to have a right understanding of God. But knowing who God is and entering into a relationship with him are two different things. And so there needs to be more than just having a right understanding of God. To enter a, re a relationship, a covenant relationship with the one true God, we need to know who he is, but we also need a proper sacrifice to God. This is verses 30 to 31. They build an altar on Mount Ebal. Verse 31, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, here's the kind of altar they built, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And what did they do? They offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord, Yahweh, and sacrificed peace offerings. So I've been, I've been making this argument that people can enter into a relationship with God. But, but let me make sure that I'm clear. God is a relational God. He created you to be relational people. That's why the pandemic was so hard. 
because we were isolated from relationships. We need relationships. And the first people that God created, Adam and Eve, were created in perfect relationship with God. But what did they do? They disobeyed God's command and they rebelled against him. And that sinful rebellion brought separation between them and God. And then that sinful rebellion was passed down to each one of us and has brought separation between God and humanity. You see, when we're, we are born, we're born sinful rebels. I know that's hard to think because babies are so cute and innocent. But we grow up with a natural instinct that we don't want other people telling us what to do. We like to make the rules for our lives. And our relationship with God because of that is what the Bible calls sin is severed. So that sinful rebellion is a big deal. In fact, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse number 20, the soul who sins shall die. Sin leads to death. That's why each of us are going to die. Because of our sin. It's a death without God, separated from him forever. If we die in our sin without repentance And how can humanity be restored to a relationship with God? It's through a proper sacrifice. Now, as we read their sacrifice here in Joshua chapter 8 and and what the people of Israel would do with the sacrifice, the point of the sacrifice was that something else would die in our place. We deserve to die because of our sin, but the sacrifice was that animal would give his life in place of mine. That, that was what it was pointing to. And that, and that the blood would act as a covering for sin. So the people of Israel were commanded in the law to offer sacrifices to God. They built, here in verses 30 to 31, they built an altar, and it's an altar of uncut stones. What does that mean? It, simply put, it was to demonstrate that the work of forgiveness was God's work, not man's work. These were just natural stones that he had created. You say, well, why did the people do this? Why did they offer these sacrifices? Keep your finger in Joshua 8, and let's turn to Deuteronomy 27. Because I feel like it's hard to know all that's going on here. And this is on page number 168. So just a few pages back. It's hard to know everything going on here unless you see it here in the law in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verses 4 to 8. And let me just read those verses for you. This is why Joshua was doing what he was doing. Verse number 4. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall offer peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So Joshua is leading the people to carry out the the word of the Lord just as it was commanded to Moses. 
And the people are to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, the burnt offerings, they could be a bull or a sheep or a goat or a pigeon or a dove, depending on what, what a person could afford. But these were offered for the atonement or the payment of sin, and they were an expression of devotion to God. The peace offerings could be cattle or sheep or goats or even bread, and there are lots of, lots of different offerings that the, the law uh, talks about. But this was, the peace offerings were a sacred meal between two parties. That's why it talks about you shall eat this meal. Knowing, though, who their God is, Israel offers these sacrifices the way that God has commanded them. And what are these sacrifices demonstrating? Their sins have been atoned for, have been paid, and their communion with God has been restored. Now think about this. At that time, on many of the mountains around Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, there were sacrifices being made to false gods. Now, at the top of Mount Ebal, Israel proclaims this message to the people of Canaan. Yahweh is our God, and he forgives sins, and we can have a relationship with him. That's what they're testifying to. And that's exciting stuff. But Israel comes to God in worship through a proper sacrifice. So to enter a covenant relationship with God requires a right understanding of God. It requires a proper sacrifice. Number three, it requires full submission to God. So the people really have already demonstrated submission to God's ways and his commands by going to Mount Ebal, by building an altar of uncut stones, and offering the required sacrifices. But the renewal of the covenant is is a full submission to God in all that he has commanded. You see there, uh, jump, jump back to Joshua 8 if your finger's still there. In verse number 32, he says, it says, And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. So there in the presence of everyone, Joshua writes the law on the stones that were given to Moses. Imagine how long that would have taken. Sometimes you guys are thinking like, man, he's really going a long time. Can you hurry up? Think about how long that would have taken. So renewing the covenant was not something that they were rushing into. They had time to reflect on what God had done for them. They had time to reflect, do we really want to commit to submitting to God's law? And you know what? God is the same today. He's not some kind of slick salesman that tries to get you to make a quick decision without thinking about it. He's very open about who he is. This is who I am. Look at my word. I'm revealing myself to you. Here's what's required, and he is seeking people who have counted the cost in what it will take to follow him. It's a life of faith, but it's a life of full submission to all that he commands. So you get to verse number 33. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with the elders and the officers and their judges. Okay, notice here, all Israel gathers, and you see how Israel is defined. It's defined as the sojourner, like the the foreigner, the alien, as well as the native-born. In other words, Israel is made up of people of faith, not ethnicity. It's not not just about the ethnic people of, of Israel, that's who, that God has been dealing with them, but we've already seen how Rahab, the Gentile prostitute, 
repents and becomes part of the people of Israel, and there were probably others. You also notice that no one is above the law. It lists the elders, the officers, and the judges. In other words, God's word was to be followed by all who believed in him. There was no one above the law. Now, if you're not familiar with Israel, they had 12 tribes. And here, what does is, what is our text it continues to say? Uh, half of them are in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. So they take six tribes, they put them on the slopes of Mount Ebal, six on the slopes of Mount Gerizim, and they put the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in the middle. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a sign of God's presence. It was, it was, it was God's presence there with his people. And it was a reminder of his promise, his covenant to them. I want to show you the map again here. Here's the same map. So you have half of the tribe on the slopes of Mount Ebal, half on the uh, slopes of Mount Gerizim, and there in the middle where it's, it says caravan routes on this map, um, you have the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there in the middle. And God is present with his people, and Joshua starts to read the entire law. And, and actually, the text says both the blessing and the cursing. And then it says he reads it to all the people, the women and the little ones, the children and the sojourners. Everyone is responsible to hear the word and to agree to it. Everyone is renewing this covenant. It's why in, uh, just previously there was men and women that were destroyed in the battle of Ai that were killed because the women of Ai were not innocent bystanders. There are other, other texts that we could go back into that talk about the people of this land were, were, were wicked and they were even committing child sacrifice, which was an abomination to the Lord. Hard for our minds to wrap around it. But the women and the men we're both guilty before God. Here, they're all hearing the law and they're all agreeing to it. And here's what this would have looked like. And this comes from Deuteronomy 27. So if you want to get more details of Joshua 8, go back and read Deuteronomy 27 in detail. But here's one of the curses. Cursed is anyone who dishonors his father and mother. Yikes, that's a tough one. Sorry, kids, teens. I know, hey, I I've been there. But when, when they would hear this read, all the people on Mount Ebal would say, Amen. They would agree to that. Cursed be the one who dishonors his father and mother. Cursed be the one who builds and makes a false idol. They are agreeing to and submitting to God's rule. Now, this was the first time that Israel had done this in this place. But it's not the first time that they have heard the law and they have agreed to it. They did this under the leadership of Moses. But much of what we see and have seen in the book of Joshua is the same that we've seen before. It's just with a new generation and a new leader. And this cycle will continue. Sin against God, repentance, renewal of the covenant. It's, it's really the nature of the Mosaic covenant. And what do, I, what do I mean by Mosaic covenant? It's the covenant given to Israel through Moses. It's the law that God has given his people through Moses, their leader. And it's going to require an ongoing renewal because people are sinful and they will break God's law. And when that happens, they cannot offer acceptable worship 
to God because true worship can only happen when we are in covenant relationship with him. So here, the people renew the covenant. Now, that, okay, I kind of understand what's going on in Joshua 8. How do we apply that to us? Properly applying this text means that we can't simply look at what Israel did and then seek to do the same exact thing. So we shouldn't go and travel to Mount Ebal and build an altar and start sacrificing animals. We shouldn't copy the law of Moses and read it so that everyone can hear. We don't need to do any of those things that were part of the old covenant. That's good news. But why don't we need to do those things? And that is a great question. So let me show you. Turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 4, page 888. Some of you might be familiar with this story. And if you're not, we will give a quick summary. But in John chapter 4, this is now in the life of Jesus. In verse number 3, I want to read just a few verses for us. Verse number 3 is talking about Jesus. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That's why I talked about Jacob earlier. Jacob's well was there. I'm just going to stop reading. I want to show you another map. Got lots of maps today. You see uh, where that red bullet is. You see that name Sychar, which is exactly uh, where Jesus was. And he goes to this place, which is right by Jacob's well. And if, it might be a little hard to see, but there's two, uh, wor- two different words on the left, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So we're right in the area that Joshua has led the people right in the area of Jacob's well. And this is where, again, Joshua has led his people to renew their covenant with God. So the Bible is one book telling one big story. It's not just all these random things compiled together. And so in John chapter 4, what we just read, if we were to keep reading down through there, Jesus gets into a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Now you say, well, what is a Samaritan woman? What does that even mean? In those days, you had Jewish people and you had people that weren't Jewish. They were called Gentile people. And largely, they kept to themselves. They were separate from each other. But through the years, they started to intermarry. And these half-breeds, if you will, were the Samaritans. The Jewish people, they, some of you know, the Jewish people would go all the way around Samaria just so they didn't have to deal with the half-breeds. And, they, and, and so they, this is who the Samaritan woman was. And so really, Jesus, as a Jew himself and a male, should not have even been talking to this woman with the customs of the Jewish people. But we know that Jesus has great love for all people. And so he starts talking to the Samaritan woman. And in this conversation, 
She has come to this wa- the, the, Jacob's well to draw water from the well. And in the conversation, they start talking about worship. Jump down to verse number 20. Verse number 20. Here's what the woman says to Jesus. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, what is she talking about? She's talking about Mount Gerizim because that is where the Samaritan people would worship. In fact, at some point they had built a temple that was destroyed in like 110 BC, um, but they built a temple that rivaled the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So really, you can kind of picture this woman standing there looking up at Mount Gerizim and say, hey, we worship on this mountain You, the Jewish people, you worship in Jerusalem. Now understand what a temple was. A temple was representing the presence of God. It was was the place of worship where people would come to, to meet God. That was the idea of the temple. So the Samaritans, Mount Gerizim was the place of worship where they would meet God. For the Jewish people, Jerusalem was... The, their place of worship where they were meet, would meet God. Now notice what Jesus says in verses 21 to 24. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, he's talking about the Jewish people, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Here's what Jesus is saying. True worship is shifting from a location to a person. It's not about the mount. It's not about Jerusalem. Where people meet with God is shifting from a location to a person. And Jesus is that person. He's the long-awaited Savior of God's people. And he has come. And by the time you get to the end of the book of John, he will have lived a perfect life, died a cruel death on a cross, been buried, but rose again. And when this work of Jesus was complete, that old covenant... That Mosaic covenant, the covenant that Joshua and the people were were renewing with God has passed away. And it's been replaced by a new covenant. You see, the old covenant would never work because people could never obey it perfectly. There was always going to be that cycle. And so God promised that he would establish a new covenant with his people that, uh, that, that would one day there would come a promised ruler and that ruler would do everything that the law required and he would do it perfectly. He would do what Israel could never do and then he would willingly sacrifice his life for his people. I have one more text that I want to turn to and I know we've already turned to a couple places but if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 8. It's page 1005. And again, hopefully this is even a help to you in just seeing how all of the Bible connects to this one 
story, this story of good news through Jesus Christ, this gospel story. Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 7 through 13. So let me just read these words here. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's talking about that old covenant that Joshua and the people were renewing, there would have been no occasion for a second. Verse number eight, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Yes, we've already seen that. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws, not on stone, but into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor or each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. As both fully God and fully man, he is able to live in perfect submission to God's law while at the same time becoming a sacrifice for sin. The very next chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 9.15, tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the one who makes the new covenant possible. A covenant that, as we read, engraves God's law on our hearts and minds. What does that mean? It means it gives us a desire for and the power to live out God's law, to obey his commands. It's a covenant that makes us God's people, that forgives our sin once and for all. And it's through this covenant relationship with God that we can now offer acceptable worship to him. True worship can only happen when we are in covenant relationship with God and we can only enter this relationship through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or we could think about the, the words of Jesus when he's speaking to the religious leaders in John chapter 2 and verses 19 to 21. We've already talked about the temple a bit, but he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up or rebuild it in, the, in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So with that in mind, think about the woman at the well as she looks to Mount Gerizim and and she says, hey, this is the Samaritan place of worship where the Samaritan temple once was and there's the place of Jerusalem where the temple of the Jewish people is. Then Jesus points to himself and says, I am that temple. If you want to worship me, if you want to meet with God, you must come to me. 
So do you see how Jesus fulfills that old covenant? Do you see that the covenant that Joshua made and, and the people renewed there in Joshua 8 has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? And what this means is that to worship God, we must repent from our sin, turn from it as Israel did, follow him in obedience as Israel did, and we must reaffirm the covenant. But here's the thing. It's not by religious rituals and sacrifices, but it's by faith. Faith that our covenant relationship with God is secured because of Jesus And so what Israel was doing in Joshua 8 was pointing forward to what Jesus would one day do for us. It's through him that we offer acceptable worship to God. And so our worship is not accepted because of how emotional we feel when we sing, how sincere you feel when you listen, or even how dedicated you feel as you serve, because those things are all about you. The only reason we can offer true worship to God is because we stand before him as accepted. Or, here's a, the, a theological word, justified. Do you know what that word means? Just as if I never sinned, and just as if I did everything perfect. And it's at the cross that Jesus has taken our sin and given me his perfection and has brought me into a covenant relationship with God. So can I ask you, is this how God sees you today? That your sin has been forgiven? That you stand before him as perfect because of what Jesus has done? Is this how you come to him in worship? There's an old hymn, Rock of Ages, and and one of the phrases in that old hymn, it says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And that really does lead into our theme of this series. A faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. Or we might say, a faith that truly worships is a faith in Christ. Let's pray.